Congress members call for the Department of Justice to investigate oil companies for their long-running campaign to mislead us all about the devastating harm the burning of their fossil fuels would cause. Okay, so you've heard about push presents, but how about push puppies? A presidential candidate in Taiwan wants to address the country's dwindling birth rate by giving couples a puppy with each new birth. And Smucker's brand that owns Jeff Peanut Butter buys Hostess, makers of Twinkies, for $5.6 billion. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nate. We're two OBGYNs who care about the environment and how it affects our patients. So in 2020, we published the first paper about climate change and pregnancy in a top medical journal. It had tables and everything. The day the paper came out, the New York Times wrote about our findings. And 10 hours later, Joe Biden tweeted at us. Then a bunch of other things happened. So now, like everybody else, we've got a podcast. Welcome to the Green Docs. In this episode, we'll be talking to Alex Rivest, one of the directors of a new documentary soon to be released on September 20th called Canary, about a real-life Indiana Jones who has dedicated his life and actually nearly lost it in order to bring us the true historical record of the Earth's climate. I'm Bruce Bacar, a Climate for Health fellow at EcoAmerica in Washington, D.C., where we train health professionals on the science of how climate change affects health, as well as how to communicate and advocate effectively, both within healthcare and within their communities. And I'm Nate DiNicola, an OBGYN in Southern California and the environmental health expert for our national and international OBGYN societies, which means I help write the policies and clinical guidelines for how doctors here in the U.S. and really all over the world make climate part of how they take care of women's health. So it's been an active week. Bruce, what's new with you? Well, it's late summer here on the beach, and it's actually the best time of year after Labor Day. Don't tell anybody. I actually fell in love with this area in September 1975 after one of these perfect beach days we often have in September. So I'm excited about the next month or two because they really are the best of the year. And also next week, I'm headed to D.C. for Eco America's annual Climate for Health meeting with doctors and nurses across the country. I'll be leading a couple of panel discussions, but otherwise just seeing people I haven't seen in person for a couple of years. How about yeah. you? Well, you're, you're giving away all of our secrets about local summer. That's the whole <laughs> that's the whole beauty of September here. And that's why I whispered. You know, when when this thing takes off, we're going to we're going to be blaming you for all the beach traffic. <laughs> so you're off to DC. That's awesome. Do you have uh, any any stops in mind? Any dinner venues or any happy hour spots? Well, there's going to be a, a dinner with upper muckety mucks of the of this nonprofit called Eco America and I love these people, so I'm looking forward to that. But in your honor, I, I figure I have to at least stop by on one of the evenings at the Jack Rose Saloon and see what new single malt scotch I've never had before uh, tempts me with there. I don't know how magazines would even go about ranking top bars in the world. First of all, awesome job. I think that should be next on the list of Green Docs projects. But it, it consistently gets ranked in like the top bars of the world. Yeah, you and I have shared scotch there before. And that, that list is just absolutely incredible. Wall to wall. I mean, truly top shelf scotch, whiskey and everything. Really cool. Well, we'll have to hear about everybody you meet and, and every group with on, uh, on the next episode. For myself, we just got back from Savannah, Georgia, where we went to a Savannah Bananas baseball game. Have you heard of these guys? <laughs> Not until you mentioned it a couple of days ago, but I didn't hear any details. What do these bananas do, this baseball team? Well, they're very appealing. All right. I had to get that out there. I had to get that out of the way. <laughs> no, you didn't. There's medication for that. <laughs> it only takes so many. It's like the Harlem Globetrotters for baseball. They claim that they're, they're kind of reinventing the game. And it's not just an approach to making it, you know, entertainment first, sport second. They have actually made up their own new rules for what they call banana ball. This began kind of as a small team and league out of Savannah, Georgia. And they quickly on social media have gathered a international following of millions of followers. So now it's a really hard ticket to get. Kendall surprised me as a birthday gift. Uh, she managed to win the lottery and get tickets to the game. So we got to go. And I, I got to tell you, it is unlike any baseball game I've ever seen. And I'm a huge baseball fan. I've gone to, I don't know how many, you know, I mean, thousands of games. And this, yeah, this was special. 
Okay, I still don't get it. What do they do differently? Do they not use a regular ball? Do they not run to the bases? What What's different about them? Yeah, they throw bananas. Isn't that obvious? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. So, okay, it, it looks like baseball for the most part. But like Harlem Globetrotters, there's a lot of really acrobatic moves and you know, showmanship and then the kind of song and dance part to it. But they do actually create some new rules for baseball. So, like, for example, if there's a foul ball into the stands and one of the fans catches the ball, the batter's out, which <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Like creates a lot of interest in trying to dive for that ball. And then this is going to get kind of into the uh, baseball rules of it. But for baseball fans, I think you'll appreciate this. When a player walks, so they get four balls and they, they get to go to first base. Every player on the defensive team has to touch the ball before they can get the runner to stop running. This doesn't really do anything for a typical walk like, you know, ball four, the runner goes to first base. All nine players have to touch the ball, and it's like this hot potato thing happening in the outfield. Usually that's the end of it, though. The player makes it to first base, and that's it. But if there's a runner on second base, the old adage, like, a walk is as good as a hit, isn't really true in regular baseball. You know, you, you get a walk, you just advance one base. But in banana ball, a walk is as good as a hit in driving a runner home because the runner from second can easily score by the time the defensive team is playing hot potato <laughs> getting all nine players to touch the ball. That, that to me was my favorite part of banana ball. Well, does the score end up sounding like it was from a football game then? It's not four to, four to two, it's, it's uh, 44 to 27 or something like that? Good thing you asked because they do scoring totally different also. You don't have the score based on how many runs you score. It's how many innings you win. You might score, like have a big inning, say, say score five runs, and the other team scores one. You only get one point for that because you won the inning and at the end of the game they see who has the most innings won then like the ninth inning it kind of all goes to just it's a free-for-all and they try to make it close at the end and (laughs) all the things you would do in a harlem globetrotter showmanship kind of way but every time they win an inning they also do a giant celebration with like song and dance and acrobatics and (laughs) it's it's just a whole different ball game so this is an eight-hour baseball game basically you spend the whole day there or what no even better (laughs) They say start the clock at the beginning of the game, and it is guaranteed to be two hours. Like once you get to two hours, then that's kind of it. Ninth inning starts, and you get like 10 minutes or so, like extra time in soccer. And who do they play? Are there there teams in the Banana League, or is it just them playing themselves? Their classic rival, much like the Globetrotters have the Washington Generals, is the party animals. And the party animals don't enter from the dugout. They come from what looks like the wilderness behind left field, and literally crawl over the outfield wall, descending upon the ballpark. I could talk about this for the entire show, but we probably should move on at some point. But uh, that sounds like a hell of a lot of fun. It was incredible. I, I do think that next episode we'll have to devote even more time to Banana Ball. This could become a regular, a regular thing. Okay, so on less... have to follow those guys. Yeah. <laughs> less entertaining news. We've got to bring it down here, unfortunately. Although there's a bit of a positive uh, angle to this story. The oil companies, I think, no surprise, have been lying to us for a while. What is the, the U.S. Senate trying to do about it? Well, this is very much analogous to big tobacco. And in late July, 20 members of the House and Senate from across the country sent a letter to the Department of Justice to compel them to investigate the intentionally misleading behavior of oil company executives and many of their employees to hide the extreme danger of their products from all of us, which is a potential violation of federal laws. At the same time, some of the companies promoted their efforts to reduce their impact, the kind of classic what we call greenwashing. However, little has ever come from that. And actually, there's another article I saw that said that Shell Oil has recently just stop talking about their program to reduce their greenhouse gas output because they lost interest in it, probably milked it for all it was worth. Anyway, these actions to me, are they're worse than just putting profits over people. It's literally putting the preservation of their lifestyles over our lives. And I'm very glad to see Congress stepping up. And my only disappointment in this is it was only 20 members of Congress. It should have been at least 200. Yeah, I, I think it's a really strong analogy to compare it to big tobacco in so many ways, both in the playbook of, you know, creating kind of made up organizations to promote pseudoscience or false science, make it look like there's experts to create the illusion of debate and uh, nobody knows what's true when really the, the, the scientific consensus is quite clear. And I think it's important to keep going back to that analogy because it not only applies in the politics of it all, but to some, it's not really a labored analogy to connect it to the physiology of it. A lot of 
what we talk about in the climate crisis is air pollutants that are inhaled that have therefore a health risk because those inhaled pollutants get into all your organs. In our case, uh, for pregnant women, that includes the placenta. And most importantly, the secondhand smoke matters. Air pollution is almost like secondhand smoke for any community where it, it's not enough if you say aren't a major producer of PM 2.5 or ozone or other air pollutants. If somebody next to you is, it's like being on the plane in the non-smoking section. You know, you really can't avoid it. In some ways, I guess it's encouraging because we've seen this before and we have found ways to adapt to things like big tobacco. But we also know it's, it's a huge industry that we're, that we're fighting to, to get the truth out there and that they can be very influential. There's a whole lot of money behind them, and obviously they're exercising their power in every way they can to protect their profits. But the thing I like to keep in mind is we're not talking about companies. We're talking about individuals making decisions at these companies and then people that are carrying them out. So there's a limited number of people who, frankly, I, I think very much deserve our wrath and deserve to pay a price for this and deserve to be stopped in any way that we can. Because adapting won't work. We have to stop the essentially our society's addiction to that which causes not only air pollution but also out of control heat and widening infectious disease range and ferocity of storms and on and on and on let's move to something really serious and difficult talk to me about push puppies what are you talking about yeah whenever you need to change the subject from something serious we can always go to puppies so <laughs> had uh, had you heard it all about about taiwan having this initiative of offering no couples uh, push puppies. That, by the way, is not the phrase they're using. That was just something I coined. There's, there's a lot of concepts wrapped up in here. I think I'm just going to kind of flag the concepts for people to maybe read about on their own because I don't want to go on and on about it. There's a lot you can say. But essentially, Taiwan has a fertility trap, which is what happens when the birth rate drops below 2.1 births per woman. Taiwan's actually quite low. They're at 1.2. And it's called a fertility trap, not just a fertility trend, because you have intuitively you can understand like an exponential process happens where the fewer and fewer people you have, the harder and harder it is to maintain that nice, healthy, stable population dynamics. So that's where Taiwan finds themselves. They are in a place where there's actually like more pets than young kids, I think below age 15. And so they're, they're looking to basically incentivize a more healthy, in their sense, a more stable population dynamic with push puppies. This is just one presidential candidate. It's uh, Terry Go. He's a billionaire candidate, so it's not a, as of yet, an official government program. But uh, if he were to be elected, it looks like that would be one of his solutions. So we've gone from a chicken in every pot, which was before even my time, to now a puppy in every household. Do people get to choose if they want a dog or a cat or a, a possum or? <laughs> you know, I, have <laughs> you ever this work? have you ever seen a possum? <laughs> Those things are terrifying. We had a possum in our backyard in Huntington Beach. Those things are terrifying. I doubt they're going to be high on the list. Uh, yeah, it's the, the idea is like just people clearly like pets. And so it uh, could be any. They, they, they talk about dogs and cats. I, I don't know what else they, they would offer. Uh, but one of the things I want to direct listeners to is just this concept of micro trends. So, Bruce, you probably have heard of the phrase soccer mom. Sure. Did you know where that came from? No, I must confess. I, I just adopted it not knowing this vital fact. Yeah, I think most people have just heard it and they assumed like, oh, it was like, you know, concept that kind of just came out there and everyone knows it. But it actually was defined by somebody who's a political strategist. His name is Mark Penn. And he identified it as one of these uh, micro trends decades ago as part of his political consulting. He wrote a follow up book to that initial one that had among them uh, Soccer Mom. It's a book called Micro Trends Squared. And it's just a fascinating book. I, I will put a link in our show notes. I'd uh, recommend it as Green Doc's recommended reading because the micro trends that he updated uh, about five years ago really describe so many things we're seeing in our society. And some of them do impact our work. In this case, it's, it's the trend of single with pet and the demographics, the number of people who are more or less delay, delaying childbearing and having pets in the meantime has just risen uh, exponentially. And so this dynamic of many pets in the household, almost in place of children, is something that, you know, is contributing, maybe in a small way, but contributing to these fertility dynamics. And at least in Taiwan, they think that's part of it also. All right. Well, another story that we could certainly spend an awful lot of time on, but I want to pivot to the really big news. And that is in a blockbuster snack food deal just announced this week, Smuckers pays an extremely high price to buy the Twinkie Biz. 
of the deal, one analyst said, we're surprised that Smuckers, or frankly anyone, would pay that amount. And I just wondered, Nate, do you think it's because all the Twinkies, Ho-Hos, and Ding Dongs, regardless of age, are still as fresh as the day they were manufactured because of all that hyper-processing? Or did the Smuckers accountants just miscalculate in the midst of a sugar high? I'm thinking of Jerry Seinfeld's bit where he talks about Pop-Tarts. And it was like his favorite food as a kid. And it's like the food of the future. And you're going to be taking it to outer space. And it's the perfect food to take to outer space because it can't go stale because it was never good to start with. <laughs> it was never food to begin with. <laughs> I probably blew the punchline there a little bit, but <laughs> that's what I'm thinking of is it can't go bad. It's not food. Exactly. I mean, they could go to the 7-Eleven any place in the country and pick up a whole bunch of them and, and then go sell them to somebody else. You know, I, I'm reminded of a trip when I was in D.C. It was late at night. I was taking a train from, from D.C. back to Philadelphia when I was uh, at Penn in fellowship. And everything was closed except McDonald's. So, and I was starving. And I hadn't had McDonald's in so many years, but I thought, you know, it's open, whatever. Let me, let me go back to a classic from my childhood, the Big Mac. When I tell you, I, I could not recognize that Big Mac from what I thought I had when I was a kid. The meat it looked like just food-like substance. The, the bun seemed like styrofoam. I really thought they should have to call it something else. It's, it's not really food. It's something like it. I imagine this may be in play in some of the processed dessert foods you're talking about. And, and I do want to make an environmental connection because, you know, we love to do that around here. The world's food systems generate about a third of all greenhouse gas emissions. And that's partly because of agriculture, but a big part of it is because of the carbon impacts of processing, refrigeration, and transportation. Research has shown that ultra-processed foods are linked to more greenhouse gases than other food groups. One more reason to stop eating Twinkies. I was really wondering how you're going to tie that in. But as always, the environment, every, the environment drives the engine. It always comes back somehow. Yes. And now on a very somber note, frequent listeners to our show have probably noticed that we include at the end on our sign-off production credits to Imagine Podcasting and a gentleman by the name of John Beethan. And we are very, very sad to report that on August 30th, eight days after having a heart procedure, John suffered a what we think was probably a major heart attack, and he passed away. And we uh, have only known the man for about five months, but he really helped to shape our podcast. He designed and created our website. I worked with him very closely on the production of all of the episodes, going back and forth, trying to trade his perfectionism for mine. And I learned a lot from the man, but I also got to really like him as a friend. And so it's very sad to share this news. Yeah, he, he was one of those uh, people that you come across, if you're lucky, uh, every so often in life where you may not know them very long, but you never forget them. And they do kind of leave a mark on you forever. I saw that come through with you, Bruce, as you leaned into your microphone earlier in the episode to talk about local summer. That was one of the first tips he gave us in, in a very humorous way. So really appreciated his, his warmth and his touch to the, the comedic side of our podcast. He was always very supportive of what we had as a vision here for the Green Docs and um, we'll be you know, trying, trying to carry on what, uh, what we built from the beginning with, uh, with all these future episodes. He made an indelible mark and it wasn't just his professionalism and his expertise, but also just the warmth and the support that he provided. So thank you, John. I hope you're doing well where you are now. All right, we will be back with our interview. We're about to talk to one of the directors of an important new documentary called Canary. He is Dr. Alex Rivest, an MIT-trained neuroscientist. I have to admit that I met Alex about a year ago because his wife, Elizabeth, who's an emergency room doctor here in San Diego, does climate advocacy, and we've done some things together. She's an inspiring and fantastic person. And then I found out her husband is doing this amazing film. So once we heard the movie was about to be released, we immediately contacted him to see if he would talk to us about so many things about Canary. So let's meet Alex now. Welcome to the Green Docs. Thank you so much for making time. I'm sure this is a pretty busy week for you. Yeah, thank you very much for, for having me. It's really a, an honor and a pleasure to talk with you. This It has been a fun, crazy week to talk about this film with so many different people, and there's a lot of different ways to talk about this film in terms of the intersection with health and being inspired to tackle climate change. And so it's it a lot to talk about, and I'm just excited to be with you. 
I have to let you know that I never watch television except the Super Bowl when it's daylight out. And I watched this movie. I was just going to catch the first few minutes of it yesterday afternoon. It was a nice sunny day here in San Diego. And I sat through the whole film and it felt like it was about 20 minutes long. It moves along amazingly well. But the first thing I wanted to ask is uh, the thing that struck me right away was you were trained at MIT as a neuroscientist, and now you're a filmmaker. Are you some kind of 21st century buckaroo bonsai? <laughs> uh, uh, thank you for the question. You know, I was passionate about neuroscience for a long time. I was fundamentally wanted to figure out what a memory is, and that was my goal. And so I was on the academic track for a long time. I did my undergrad at uh, UC Santa Barbara. Then I was studying memory systems in mice for 15 years at MIT. was able to publish in science and nature neuroscience some of the findings there. And I got to this point where I'd always been someone who liked to travel and explore and kind of report back from the frontier. And what I found everywhere I went, there was always a group of people that were a little bit further than I could go. And so I just had this, you know, so I, so I kept asking, who are these people? Where they get to go places I don't get to go. And they were always scientists. There was something I felt fundamentally missing in communicating that curiosity can allow you to explore the planet in a way that nothing else can. Scientists literally get to go to every corner of the planet and ask questions. Being a nerd is really cool. And uh, <laughs> I didn't, every time I watched science programming, it always felt like homework. Uh, you know, as you were saying, you know, sitting down for a typical docker or something, it, it always felt like I wanted to like it more than I did. And so when I had the opportunity to meet my co-director on this project, Danny O'Malley, who is kind of the special sauce behind Chef's Table, the, the longest running series on Netflix, pitched him this idea as people do when they show up in LA. You know, I got this idea and he resonated with the idea that science programming felt like homework. And we set out to see if we could figure out how to change that. And, you know, we got a grant from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation to basically prove that scientists were interesting. And so we went on filming all around the world with these amazing stories. And then we met Lonnie and with a Skype call, within five minutes, he had us pulled into this adventure story. Within 40 minutes, both of us were crying on the Skype call. And at the end of it, I just turned to, my, to Danny and I said, if, if there's a single story we ever tell in this world, it has to be this one. Because as you've seen in the film, there are so many intersections with Lonnie's life and features of climate change as an issue, right? It's not just an adventure science doc, but it's a guy who comes from coal mining country. It's a guy who goes into his own denial, right? There's every single angle angle of it is is just ripe for telling a story about climate change in a way that I'd never seen a climate change story. You know, I, I just got the bug of trying to change how scientists are seen. I, I realized that if I didn't do the stuff in lab, other people would do it. But I, I realized that with filmmaking and science filmmaking, I could add something unique to this world. And so I decided that's where I wanted to put my time. And I'm, I'm just grateful that I did. Well, you know, Alex, it's so interesting that you bring up memories as part of your early work in neuroscience. Because I'll admit, when I was watching this documentary, I knew I'd be interested in the, in the topic. You know, we have a real-life Indiana Jones showing us how the climate science was was brought to a public attention. That by itself will be interesting to some people, and myself included. But I was thinking, like, why is a neuroscientist taking this on? And then early on in the movie, you kind of, I didn't know you had the, this prior research interest in memories, but that was one of the first hooks of, of the film, was that Lonnie is being approached by the local people who have a religion connected to their environment, and they believe that basically these glacier caps in the rainforest are, are their god's minds, and... He's drilling into them, basically taking out their memories. And Lonnie says, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. I, that's exact, I'm, I'm taking the Earth's memory and bringing it to light. Is that part of what attracted you to this project, like bringing that type of storytelling to scientific messages? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think, to be honest, with more with that story, to the idea that glaciers you know, are not just the static thing. The, the idea that you know, we, we talk about climate change and we talk about glaciers as kind of an abstract concept. And for so many people around the planet, glaciers are the source of life, the source of water, the source of spirituality. I mean, they, they literally give life in, in ways that it's hard to, to comprehend, you know, how many 
cultures base their existence off of glaciers and, and what the changes in these glaciers will do. You know, if you look at the Himalayas, for example, two billion people get their water from runoff from these glaciers. And by the end of the century, that water resource is going to be gone. The water towers are going to be gone. What do we do then? So understanding what these glaciers mean. And there's another aspect too, the memory aspect, which when people talk about climate change and we talk about it kind of disrupting the future, Right. And one thing that climate change is doing is it's also wiping out the, our ability to read the past. And that's something that not a lot of people talk about. And, you know, when glaciers melt, the memory of our planet is gone for good. So if we do not collect these ice cores before these glaciers melt, we just lose the ability to understand our planet's past. And that has impacts you know, way beyond just the human consequences. It's just an understanding thing that, that is lost. And there's that quote that has been around forever that is uh, those who don't know the past are doomed to repeat it those memories are vital and Lonnie the scientist and this film is one of the things that popped into my head right away was how beautifully it's shot and you tell me that the other fellow you worked with Danny O'Malley is a worked on Netflix uh, chef's table this has serious cinematography that the entire movie I would say 80% of it is out in the field and showing these things up close and personal. I have a whole bunch of questions about that, but certainly one thing I do want to acknowledge you for is, is creating a beautiful piece of art. This film tells a story that you never feel like you're being taught. It just takes you on a journey. And some of those places are absolutely stunning, but I knew the story of ice cores before, at least as a concept. I'm now fascinated to see more pictures of glaciers because I now understand from him telling this story how you can actually see with your naked eye the passage of time through these tall, majestic uh, masses of ice out in yeah. out in really far-flung places. Did you do a lot of traveling yourself as part of the filming? So the biggest trip we did was our first trip with Lonnie, which was to Kelkaya, the Kelkaya Ice Cap, which is the glacier that started Lonnie's career. It's in the remote Andes of Peru, and it sits at about 19,000 feet. You know, and when we first started this, we said, if we're going to tell this story, we need to figure out a way to bring a chef's table-like crew up to 19,000 feet and make it happen. And so I, I appreciate the comments about the cinematography, because we <laughs> training to do that was not easy, right? One of our funders said, well, what are you going to do about altitude sickness? And initially, we didn't have an answer, but we realize we can't miss this opportunity. We can't afford to have someone go down. So what we did was we trained for high altitude by, you know, you can rent these tents, that oxygen deprivation tents. So I was sleeping at a simulated 17,000 feet, you know, tent at night for three weeks and then breathing while I was emailing at a simulated 22,000 feet. Our cinematographer, Devin Whetstone, who I, I is just a, a magician when it comes to kind of bringing the beauty out of these places. He was at a, a studio in Santa Monica where he was breathing simulated 20,000 foot while doing you know, workouts just so that we could make sure that nothing would fail at, at these altitudes because you are at about 50% oxygen when you get up to 18,000 feet and it's, it's operating is a very hard thing and carrying around these huge cameras, it takes a different kind of training to do. Uh, but we ended up, we, we traveled, we went, to, we went to China, we went to West Virginia, we filmed some award ceremonies in Boston, we spent a lot of time in Columbus, Ohio, where Lonnie and Ellen work and they have this ice freezer that has ice cores from glaciers that don't exist anymore. I mean, it's kind of like walking into Notre Dame where you just, you feel the weight of, of history in these unique archives. Again, that's a freezing, you know, negative 40 degrees Celsius where you have to figure out how to operate cameras in these places. So there's a lot of um, figuring out how to figure stuff out, which is what I learned in my PhD and, and my science career. Yeah. Well, you know, Alex, uh, we're obviously we're, we're both OBGYNs who have spent a lot of time on call. I often refer to yep. myself as a perpetually post-call OBGYN. <laughs> and uh, yep. I know that feeling of I, I would not want to be writing important emails coming off a long call shift. Really curious what emails are like on 50% oxygen. Uh, <laughs> but maybe we'll get to that later on. But, but I, I really wanted to ask you about one of the stories of tension that came up in the documentary. Because this was new to me that... Uh, you know, back at the time that Lonnie was first starting the work, there was there was a scientific battle, kind of. You know, most of the ice cores were coming from the poles, the Arctic and the Antarctic. Yep. And his idea was was novel to go to these ice caps in rainforests and in other elevations all throughout the world. And part of it was just practicality, you know, and the story of how he 
problem solved to make that happen was, was, was really incredible. But then almost, I don't know if it was jealousy or just, you know, turf wars, but once he starts showing that it can be done, the scientific community actually had some conflict between the polar guys, no pun intended here, but yep. polarizing research and Lonnie going kind of peak to peak. Do you see that happening right now in climate science? Like, is, is, Are there any kind of house divided issues where the scientists maybe are squabbling over things we don't need to squabble over and there's a, there's a more broader message? I think science always has this, right? Careers are made. And one of the reasons that I'm interested in telling honest science stories is there's a lot of interesting drama and just warts in science. You know, science is a human enterprise. It shapes us and we shape it. Right. And I think the less we talk about it as this kind of glorified thing that is immutable, the better. The more we're honest about it, the more we can, it's more approachable it is. So, you know, the turf war stuff, people develop their careers by saying, this is the way things are. Right. And, you know, and the other groups say, no, this is the way things are. And the battle in there, they push each other. And eventually, you know, it's obviously meets in the middle, right? Where everyone agrees that it is both things are probably right. I don't know. There's probably a lot of internal battles happening now. I think it, again, kind of misses the point that all the data does point to the same stuff. And a lot of climate scientists are just kind of witnessing what's happening and trying to report back about it. There's a, a way that Lonnie describes visiting Kelkaya because he's had a you know, almost 50-year relationship with this glacier. And he talks about it like visiting a terminal cancer patient where you know what the end result is. And at some point, all you can do is, is just give it a voice and document what's changing. And I think for a lot of us who have had friends and family who have dealt with people who have gone through something like that, I think it is an apt uh, analogy that, you know, it, it is important to understand and talk about what caused the demise of, of these glaciers, because Kelkaya is not a glacier that we can save. And there are a lot of glaciers that are, they're beyond the point of, of no return, but there's so much to fight for, right? There are a lot of uh, future things that can happen. And I, and there's one story that I like to tell about how this type of storytelling can make you see the world differently. When Inconvenient Truth came out in the early 2000s, I got very interested in, in understanding climate science. It was the first time something had been kind of presented to me in a way that it was digestible. And this is Al Gore's film from the early 2000s. I got interested and I started, okay, well, if all the glaciers melt, how much does sea level rise? And I just you know, did all the math and figured it out. And I've always known the facts. And I always just voted the right way and figured that I'd done enough. Right? I didn't change behavior. I didn't change anything. I just, if a one candidate says it's real, the other one says it's not, I voted for the one who said it's real. And I kind of let that be my action. When I went to Kelkaya, we went to Cusco. Cusco, 500,000 people. Electricity comes from hydroelectric power that comes off of the glacier, Kelkaya. Then we went up the, the river towards the glacier. And as we did, we saw the, all the agriculture, the, the llamas, the alpacas, the kind of breadbasket that supported millions of people in the region. And then we keep going up and we see, we get to the ice cap, the largest tropical ice cap on the planet. And I asked Lonnie, okay, well, best projections, how, how long is this going to last? And he said, by the time my daughter is my age, it's gone, right? And if you think about the chaos of what that does to society, it's a world that I can't comprehend. I don't know how to picture what happens when you take away the thing that gives people power, that takes away the thing that brings people food, right? People are going to have to move without some serious intervention. And I realized that what I was doing wasn't enough. Right. If you want to fight this issue and fight for a better future for your family and for your kids, it's something you need to be doing in your life kind of all the time in any form possible. Personal behavior, groups you're part of, and then the politics of it. And so, you know, this is coming for someone who was not a denier. I was on the right side of things all the time, but I also wasn't doing enough. It's, I think it's an important lesson for me of how it, this can change people who are on the right side of the aisle. And then the question is, can you get everyone on board to realize, think about this differently? I think it's such an important point. And I get asked in the talks that I give, not uncommonly, what do you say to deniers, people that want to argue that the science isn't real or maybe the scientist, you know, doesn't drive a hybrid or something like that. Yep. And so that invalidates their work somehow. Yep. And my response is typically, I don't waste time talking to deniers because to me, the bigger fish that I want to catch, the bigger group that I want to work with are the people who get it but aren't doing anything really about yep. it, who really haven't changed their lives, who yep. might understand the urgency but aren't activated. And yep. so I think it's so great how you, the story of the movie 
I think can touch people in such a powerful way, maybe akin to what Inconvenient Truth did. But we're in a different phase right now. Back then, we were talking about global warming, and it was a new concept to a lot of people. And that film made made a huge impact, just wakening people up to the idea that we have to take this seriously. But now we're in a phase where I don't think more data is necessarily needed, but what's needed is people to take action. Yeah. So I'm so glad the film approaches this, and I'm so glad you included all the warts and the personal side of the story. There's a, an issue that comes up with Lonnie, a very serious medical condition. Did you have discussion about whether or not to include that, or did you just know right away that that had to be part of the film? We knew right away this had to be part of the film. I mean, this is the kind of beautiful irony of the guy who sees is one of the first eyes in seeing climate change happening coming back, reporting it to Congress, telling the world, listen to the facts. Here's the facts I see. This is the data I see. We need to do something about it. Take it and run. So the world expert telling the world to listen to the facts, when he's told the facts that he needs a heart transplant and he doesn't listen, that shows you how susceptible we all are to denial when we hear things we don't want to hear. And that part of Lonnie's story, I think, is extraordinarily important because it does hold a mirror up to the audience. It holds a mirror up to all of us to kind of think about where we are in denial. And it's an easy thing to just slip into denial and to fly our jets, you know, and and be doing things that are not good for the planet and kind of justifying it in whatever way we need to. But we all need to do some self-analysis, every single one of us, and be open and honest about our hypocrisies. And I think, you know, Lonnie being humble enough and vulnerable enough to talk about these things. He very nearly died because of this heart condition, because he didn't listen to the facts. You know, he is the canary in the coal mine as well, you know, kind of yelling at people to actually, when you are told something, the only thing you can do is face it head on and try to figure out a way through it. And that is true for everything that comes our way. Health issues, passion projects, but also climate change. And we need to just face the facts and go at them with a sober mind and listening to facts. Yeah, it might sound interesting to be talking about a plot twist in a documentary, but that's really how I felt it developed in the, in the say, second half or, or second two-thirds of the movie. You get this plot twist where, yeah, the man who is literally screaming from the mountaintops across the world, you know, look at the data, finds himself denying the medical science when it becomes very personal. And it almost became, you know, again, I thought I understood why a neuroscientist was taking this project on because it was more about how humans confront scary information and how humans can be motivated to adapt to that scary information. Now, in Lonnie's case, it it literally became a matter of life and death, and he had some kind of life-threatening situations, and that seems to be what compelled him to accept the medical science and proceed with treatment. Do you think, you know, from your neuroscience background, is that what it's going to take for our society comprised of all these humans who are afraid of scary information? Are we going to need a, that kind of near, near hit experience to, to change what we do? Very good question. I do think as we start to see the effects of kind of the environment getting closer and disrupting things that are close to us, it will start to push us into making the right decisions. There's a lot of things to unpack in there, you know, in terms of whether or not it becomes too late for a lot of kind of status quo things that societies have built themselves around. You know, I I remember when we were looking for houses in San Diego, you know, I I looked at the map of what sea level rise will be by 2050 and just kind of wrote off certain parts of San Diego. And the real estate agents we were working with, they... uh, like, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> I was like, I need to make smart decisions with, you know, so these calculations will start to come into the way we, we look at things. But I, I think, unfortunately, we do need to have things hit close to us to, to make a lot of changes. That being said, there's a lot of really amazing people. There are more amazing people who want to do the right thing. And I think we need to help guide them and find ways to work together to fight this issue with all the, the sobriety that it, that it requires Part of it is we are going to see things that affect us. And the other part is we need to find people and have open discussions and be working on this issue all the time because there is no other option. 
And we talk frequently on this podcast about the benefits that we get in addition to stabilizing the kind of nature that we want to live within, but all the benefits to our health, the, the many other problems that can be simultaneously addressed. Because sometimes I think it's not even really the climate that's the problem. It's more of a, a symptom of how we've come around to living in a way that sort of ignores the regeneration of nature and, and yeah. instead tears it down. So there's a this could be a much longer interview if we let it go that way. But <laughs> but I, I read a, an article in Variety about this film. And in there, I think, was a quote from you saying that you wanted to change the way science stories are told. I think we've talked about that a little bit. But do you feel like this film accomplishes that or at least moves that along? Absolutely. I mean, I as I kind of talked about before, when I left science, I set myself on a path to do exactly that. I want to change the way scientists are seen and celebrated. Science as an enterprise has so few kind of pillars that we rely on. If you ask anyone on the street, can you name me scientists? There's probably five scientists that will be common names that you've all heard of that were the ones that show up on TV. They're usually older men. And, you know, David Attenborough is an icon and speaking for the natural world and, and kind of the science, he's getting up there in age, right? And that's the same with a lot of these kind of pillars. I don't think that's a healthy status for science to have so few pillars that speak for this. And part of the problem with science programming is that you have very charismatic hosts who just kind of hold a microphone to crazy scientists and say, isn't that right, Mr. Scientist? And they say, yeah, that's right, right? And there's no, you, there's no connection. You know, the, the, the wonder, the curiosity, the, the emotions that allow audiences to connect with scientists is something that I don't see enough of. And that's, this film is trying to do that. I mean, Lonnie talks about a sixth grade math teacher inspiring him. He talks about his mom telling him, don't let other people tell you what you can and cannot do. These are common things that kids feel. There's a lot of people who feel like they're, the scope of their dreams doesn't fit into what is actually possible. And that is just not true, right? Lonnie came, his mother I was a single mom, three kids. They sometimes couldn't put food on the table. And he found a way to becoming a voice and doing these amazing things. Anyone can do this, right? Science is for everybody. Learning and following your curiosity is for everyone. So this I, this film, I think, is my first shot at doing that. And there's a lot more to come. I mean, because there are stories out there that are just humbling, right? Just inspiring. And I want to create science heroes or expose science heroes for what they actually are. And, and we need, like I said, to have more pillars that this enterprise can stand on that aren't susceptible to, you know, people making mistakes and then they're, they're kind of off the air and we can't, and then we lose a pillar. Yeah. Well, if Canary is any indication, we're going to have some really moving stories coming from you and your team about these awesome. pillars of science. When we were forming a podcast, part of our brainstorming discussion was, you know, who might we or who, who could a science communicator be at their highest aspiration? And the names are powerful. Names like Jacques Cousteau, Carl Sagan, Jane Goodall. But there are so few, really. I mean, compared to yep. the same for a different profession, say, name a famous lawyer. There's like dozens, right? Business person, yep. same thing. Do you have any in your queue or any uh, personal scientist pillar or scientist educators who you're, you're looking to either channel or, or tell their story? I am a researcher. I have a, a spreadsheet of 576 scientists that I've done research on, 50 scientists that I've, I've actually interviewed and kind of detailed their story. And we are working on a, a TV series to come on the back end of this to, to bring that out. And if it's not a TV series, it'll be movies kind of like this that tell these stories on the biggest screen. There is a wealth of story. This is a totally untapped part of entertainment. And I think what Canary shows is that with the right attention and the right trust that we can create a comfortable place for scientists to feel vulnerable enough to tell their story in a way that can attract people to it. There's a lot coming. I'm really excited about it. And that's one of the things that Lonnie is really excited about too, is, is how can he inspire people that grow up like him to follow their curiosity and not let even teachers define what their wildest dreams are. I can't wait to see what comes next, but I am going to focus for right now uh, on just hoping that as many people as possible see this film, because I think they'll be touched and informed and inspired beyond their expectations. And what can somebody do if they want to see the movie? Uh, at this point, we have, I, I could have never, ever thought this would happen, but uh, on September 20th, 
Canary is coming to 150 screens across the USA, which is mind blowing to me. When we started this process, you know, we filmed this for the big screen. Like we took the cinematic screens up to 19,000 feet. We took the crews up to these places to be able to show this on the big screen. When we started working with REI as one of our funders and Oscilloscope is our one of our distributors, they saw that this needs to be told on the biggest screen possible. So we now have, and we thought, okay, maybe. 10 screens. We now have 150 screens across the US. So Canary is coming. It's a one-time showing on September 20th. And if people come and see the film, then more showings will open up and more people will have access to see this. One time only, September 20th, canary.oscilloscope.net is where you can find if a theater is nearby and buy tickets. We also have uh, a way for that a lot of people have been utilizing to buy tickets for school groups and youth climate organizations. So we're getting donations of, you know, $1,000 here, $1,000 there to donate, to get make sure that people who uh, might not have the resources can go and see the film and, and, and be inspired by it. In New York, L.A. and Columbus, Ohio, it's opening on September 15th and will be doing a week long run. Uh, until September 21st, 22nd. And, and so there's a lot of opportunities to see the film in LA, New York, and Columbus, Ohio at canary.oscilloscope.net. This is, it's been a lot of fun. We have a lot of big events, kind of planned Q&As with me and, and Lonnie and Danny in New York and LA. And I'm so excited to share this. Uh, one other thing I wanted to say too about th- this science film. So this is a film that it becomes a, f- a really human film because it's at the end it's about belief. It is a film about what the facts and the limits of the facts and at the very essence of it, the question is is do we believe in ourselves to be able to tackle these hard problems, right? And Lonnie is a guy who's been the eyes of all of us. He, there's no career, there's no one like Lonnie in the world who has been 16 different countries across the world who's recorded what's happening. He's taken the temperature of the planet, of the past. There's no one with the experience of that 10,000 foot view to look at what's been happening on this planet. And he sees it. He knows what's happening. And he also has worked with people from China, from Russia, from Peru, international collaborations to accomplish things that said people said couldn't be done. But in doing so, he did it and proved that international collaborations with a common dream can happen. And it's a belief that there are people that can accomplish these hard things. That's where the science and human thing comes together, right? Because we are a species that likes to believe in things. And some people say belief and science don't go together, but they are part of the same enterprise, which is the human aspect of it all. And at the end of it, can we do this? Yes. And part of the reason we can do it is if we believe we can. And I think that's just an important message to take home. Well, it, it's an incredibly important message, and it segues perfectly into a lot of our work as physicians and healthcare professionals, because this collaboration is occurring here. The, the name of the film is so apt in the, as Canary. I, I don't know, actually, if everyone knows the phrase Canary in the Coal Mine. Like, that might be a, a slightly, not dated, but maybe, maybe don't, people understand the true origins, but the film explains it. It's, it's pretty clear. Coal miners would take a canary down there with them. If the oxygen started getting so low that the canary couldn't survive, you'd see that first, which meant doom was coming to you. And it's, it's been so, I don't know what the word to say, just sad, disheartening, when my work as an OBGYN intersecting with the work with a pediatrician has used that analogy to describe what they see happening to their patients. That when it comes to the populations that experience something first and worst, it, it often is kids and pregnancy. That's how this collaboration happened, was the pediatricians were saying, look, we, we see these things hitting our patients. These either toxic chemicals or extreme environments caused by a climate crisis. And so uh, the, the uplifting part, I, I, I suppose, that I'm trying to get to here is that the health messages around these have unified physicians. And those collaborations are happening. That's how I began working with uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics as the OBGYN representative. Much of the House of Medicine has come together in other collaborations. Uh, there are large uh, collaborations across the whole country and all the societies. And we've found that the health message does resonate when it comes to how this hits you in real life. Have you found that's been an effective message, connecting climate with real life situations that people respond to? Absolutely. I mean, I think that it is the thing that is most touches home the most, right? It is, is, you know, you talk about canary in, in the situation in the coal mine, the canary is the most vulnerable creature in that situation. And they're, and they're the ones that first, you know, you see this, this signs first. So when you talk about the most vulnerable being children or pregnant women or 
even cultures that live around the the glaciers and rely on the glaciers, they are the most vulnerable populations of people. And so when you start to see these changes in the most vulnerable, it is a sign of what is to come. And so people are starting to see that. You know, there's a scene in the film where we, we do sit down with the local cultures at the base of Kalkaya and just let them talk about what climate change means to them and how they see it affecting their, their future. They are very fully aware of how it's going to affect them health-wise, economically, and, and the children. And I think the health issue is the one that will start to hit first, right? When we start to have trouble breathing clean air, right? These, if you look at every major city across the, the U.S., has at least a couple days where it's full of smog from wildfires that are increasing every day. These are health concerns, Right? These are things that are tangible. They have consequences for the most vulnerable populations. The messaging around that is becoming easier to understand for everyone because it is, it is so palpable and powerful. I just want to tell you, as someone who works in this area and has a deep love for nature and for our species, thank you so much for making this Herculean effort. I'm sure it took years and it was way harder than you ever anticipated it to be. I think it's all going to pay off. And if we're the canaries in the coal mine here, giving you first responses, we're probably not. But uh, <laughs> at least let it be very clear that the Green Docs think that this is an incredible film. And it's really an honor to be able to talk to you. And if you talk to Lonnie, please give him our... I don't think there's enough we can do for that guy. But what a giant and what a beautiful story to tell about someone who genuinely deserves it because... He basically expressed his love through an incredible long career of, of difficult and unglamorous work. And we have a, a debt I don't think we can ever repay him. So thank you, Alex, for being with us. Thank you so much. I could talk about this all day long and the process of doing this. And I'm just I'm so happy that it has resonated with you. And I hope that it resonates with you know audiences in general in a way that they can see themselves differently and they can see that things are possible hard things are possible and we need to fight for those hard things and so i hope i hope there's some inspiration embedded in here for all of us it has certainly changed my life in a way that has made me you know more passionate about fighting for my kids future and the most vulnerable on this planet so thank you so much it's it's, it's an honor to talk to both of you and and i really do appreciate the time and, and the questions have been fantastic so thank you well, and a final thing that we like to do on the Green Docs is give people advice to combat the climate crisis. One thing we tell pregnant women is to, in extreme heat, seek shelter in cooling centers. It's still going to be hot on September 20th. Movie theater is a pretty cool place to be. So maybe find your way to a theater and, uh, you know, you'll learn a good message and, and you'll stay cool at the same time. I love it. Thank you, Alex. Thank you so much, Bruce and Nate. Well, there you have it, our very first podcast film review, and I thought it was great. I think Alex is a fascinating guy, and I think his movie is amazing. And Nate, I, I think maybe we should look for more of these to do in the environmental realm. I could be Sustainable Siskel, and you could be Eco Ebert. What do you think? <laughs> How long were you waiting to drop those, those puns? <laughs> Feels like you've been holding on to those for a little while. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that, that we should be doing more of this promotion you know people who have big events to share we should be part of the promotional campaign and the, probably the best endorsement i can give for the movie is that i was on call this weekend uh, it was a very busy call shift i was back and forth from deliveries nonstop. and in what little time i had to you know not be at work i started watching this movie and i, and I couldn't i couldn't turn it off the, the audience will will definitely connect with it pretty quickly right all right. So and in this segment, as we always like to give you a couple of tips that you can take away from listening to what we've provided uh, and help make you a healthier, happier person. I think one of the lessons that comes away from the first part of our podcast today is don't eat Twinkies <laughs> or processed foods just in general. I mean, there are so many reasons why not, but certainly the ones that we're most interested in are the obvious health reasons. They contain all kinds of processing and chemicals and things that are unhealthy for us and loads of sugar. But also, as I mentioned, they potentially have a bigger impact environmentally because of all the, that is involved in creating those chemicals and processing these foods so that they never go bad no matter how long they're left on the shelf at 7-Eleven. 
Anyway, given those high costs of consumption, I think it's frankly fine if the Smuckers people feel a, wheel, a, a bit like schmucks for having made this deal. Killing it with the puns, Bruce. <laughs> Killing it. <laughs> I'd have to do puns nonstop for the next several weeks just to catch up to you. But anyway, I think the biggest take-home point from today's episode is go out and see Canary. Honor the work of Lonnie Thompson and other scientists who have given so much to help illuminate problems and bring facts to a discussion, particularly one as important as we're talking about. And the way you can honor Lonnie's work and those of others the best is to commit yourself to burning less fossil fuels, whether you're at home or in terms of transportation and travel. It's frankly a good thing to vote for politicians that see these as as important issues, but more importantly, that you go beyond that. Uh, As Alex talked about, it's simply not enough anymore to bring your own bag to Whole Foods. You can work with groups in your community that are working on on providing more renewable energy or uh, climate adaptation. Ones that you've heard about, perhaps just ask around, or you can even just Google climate change organizations around me, and you will find, probably to your surprise, that there are, are several and that they'll be really happy to have your help. We have the solutions and we can do this, but we all need to do more. And your health will get better as a result of any kind of progress we can make. Nate, what do you have to add to this discussion? Yeah, a little birdie told me this Canary movie is kind of good. <laughs> that was just for you, Bruce. I know. So for, for OB 2.0 or OB, OB Plus, in talking with Alex, it really drove home what I saw when I watched the movie, which was that it, it almost wasn't even about the data anymore. Like, it, it is about that, and it's there. And, and the sacrifice that went into these scientific discoveries is, is an incredible part of the story. But at a certain point, it, it really is about kind of the human response to it. And we as, as doctors and health professionals know, as well as any, how tough it is to receive and communicate scary news. You know, we we do this on a regular basis. We get training on it and we practice how to do it. And so I think that we are in really a a very important place in society to basically get humans through responding to scary information. And part of the reason why we try to put a light touch to this podcast is that we know a lot of it is, you know, kind of doomsday and scary. But once you get past that part, then you get to the solutions. And that's where the resilience comes in. That's where you actually feel good about what you're doing and you feel energized, even if it's not going to be a perfect solution. You're doing something and it's empowering. So I think for the the healthcare professionals out there, we should definitely not be afraid to learn something about this topic. And I think anything big or small counts. Uh, we heard from past guests, Jeannie Connery, that the American College of OBGYN, the, the US uh, OBGYN Society, first encountered this because uh, somebody asked a question about lead in lipstick, kind of a random way to get into a big environmental project. We've heard uh, other people talk about extended allergy season for kids. And we, of course, talk a lot about air pollution and heat posing specific risks for pregnancy. So you could almost pick whatever area, big or small, but we should be talking to our patients about how the the changing environment has current, like like tomorrow, implications for your health. While we're learning and counseling, I think we'll end up feeling better about it uh, along the way. Thank you. Appreciate that. Let's have a mocktail. What do you got? Yeah, with that, I am definitely ready for a non-alcoholic drink. Really puts me at ease. Uh, so we were in Savannah recently for the Savannah Bananas game. And we also uh, were walking everywhere. It was still very hot. And stumbled upon this uh, really mom and pop cute cheese and wine store. But they also sold some non-alcoholic things. So there's this non-alcoholic aperitif called Bitter Lecker. You can drink it straight. I've mixed it here with some tonic water. And uh, so that's what I've got. How about you, Bruce? Well, first of all, how, how is this bitter liquor spelled? Is it spelled like it sounds or <laughs> well, yeah, so, made so, it sound a little different? Bitter liquor. If you're hearing scenes from The Office, uh, you know, butt liquor. Our price has never been lower. I, I, I'm with you. That's the first thing I heard also. Uh, it's spelled like it sounds, really, like a German, like bitter like it sounds and liquor like you might imagine it. So, yeah, the, the bottle's very unassuming. There's actually no label on it, but it's... It's a non-alcoholic aperitif that kind of goes with really any time you would drink an aperitif, hot, after dinner, something like that. So what general flavor category for the unenlightened? Is it similar to anything in particular that you've had before? Yeah, it's like aperitifs. So it's similar to uh, what you have in a Negroni. Uh, I think the, the package listed as blood orange and grapefruit. There's definitely some of that, but it really it tastes like that kind of herbal aperitif taste. Okay. Well, I just cracked open another Kin Euphorics and poured it over some 
Pellegrino and I have a, a little slice of lime in there and for kind of a muggy late summer day, it's very refreshing. So you're sticking with that brand. Did you? Uh, I'm just variations on a theme. How do you, how do you compare this one to, to last week's? Well, last week was my foray into... Uh, oh, wait, my God. How could if, I have forgotten? If, it was the, the, yeah. <laughs> the, the Dry Farm Tomato Bloody Mary. That the Dry I, Farm Tomato Bloody Mary. Uh, yeah, how, I mean, how could I have forgotten? Changed your life. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you forgot. But from the one before, the, the, this brand, how do they compare? Well, it's a question of what you mix it with, and that's one of the lessons we're learning about the mocktails is that they can wear a lot of different hats just depending upon what you mix them with. And in general, I find them to be kind of an upgrade to a simple, maybe a, a mono-flavor soda or a tea or something like that. They, they are usually infused with lots of different uh, ingredients, and so they taste kind of sophisticated. And, uh, and they don't leave you feeling fuzzy afterwards. Yeah, I agree. The The whole genre of these mocktails that are basically colas has been one of my favorites. I've kind of stacked the fridge with those, and they're pretty uh, good go-tos after when you don't always need a drink. Well, we uh, are, are really happy to bring you this episode and have a lot more in store for you coming up with some really exciting guests who have their own lectures and books and other materials to promote. A new episode of Green Docs will be out shortly. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss. Find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your listing content. And of course, stop by the website, greenduckspodcast.com, where you can check out the show notes with links to Canary and all of the related materials and send us comments and questions. We have a few waiting to answer for the next episode. This episode of Green Docs was created by Bruce Picard and Nate Nicola, and dedicated to John Beethan, our friend. This was produced by Podcast 411, Check out our website, greendocspodcast.com, where you can like and subscribe, tell your friends, or better yet, take your friends and go see the movie Canary. Take care. We'll see you next time. Bye.